a lot of times in the United States we say that person is confined to their wheelchair. Well, are they confined? Are they really strapped down, tied down, and, and, be, and held in place into their wheelchair? No, because the wheelchair is a liberator. With the wheels, the person can roll. They can, they can have access to more opportunities. You were a world-class athlete competing in the Olympic trials when a tragic fall left you with an amputated leg and life as you knew it changed forever. But you persevered, becoming a silver medalist in the Paralympic Games, creating the Warrior Games, and helping others all over the world find their redefining moments in order to move society forward. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. My name is John Register. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So one of the programs that I've been with is the Sports Envoy Program, the Speakers Program, and the Global Sport Mentoring Program. Countries visited Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and the United Arab Emirates. This week, in honor of the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the inclusive power of sports, shifting attitudes and structural barriers, changing the narrative beyond accessibility to full participation, and a reminder that PLOV is all you need. Join us on a journey from Colorado Springs to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and the United Arab Emirates. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. I'm a professional speaker. And getting to that point in my life was a, a long kind of transition. I was a world-class athlete and ran track and field for the University of Arkansas, go Hogs. And from there, I joined the United States Army. And during that time, I started traveling a little bit more internationally. I was stationed in Germany. I went to the Gulf War and saw a lot more of the world. And I, I traveled abroad before, but you know, and I was seeing it with adult eyes. And when I came back to train for my third Olympic trials, I misstepped a hurdle, went across a hurdle, dislocated my knee, severed the artery behind the kneecap, and seven days later became an amputee. So I went through the entire Gulf War without a scratch, and I come back, and now I'm an amputee from this freak hurdling accident. Who am I now? What's, you know, is she going to stick around? Is my son still going to see me as his father? Do I still have a job in the Army? All these things were really hitting me pretty hard. My wife sees me struggling. She says, you know what, John, we're going to get through this together. This is just our new normal. From there, I baseline, I began to retool the life and really start looking at how I could get my life back, you know, if there, if there was such a thing, and then move on to a, a kind of embracing this new normal concept that she was talking about. So I swam for physical therapy and wound up 22 months later actually making the Paralympic swim team. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Paralympic Games out there. Four years later, after having a leg made for running and after seeing a person at the 1996 Paralympic Games running on an artificial leg, I had a leg made for running 
and four years later won the silver medal in the long jump in Sydney, Australia and captured that silver medal but also fifth in the 100 meters and 200 meter dashes. Disability, I said, you know, it covers the spread that you can be a part of this group at any given time. The Paralympic Games, what I discovered, is a lot more tangible than the Olympic Games. So I wanted to be an Olympic class athlete all my life. But when I look at the Olympic athlete, phenomenal athletes, you know, reaching the highest level of, of the world competition, but the stories when compared to Paralympic stories don't connect as much when we're talking um, impact for a community. Because when I was at the Paralympic Games, say in Sydney, Australia, people saw my artificial leg and they said, you know, hey, my mom has an artificial leg. How do you walk or how do you do this? And so the questions are deeper than just, you know, well, how did you win that gold medal? Or how did you win that silver medal, right? It goes beyond the athleticism and it's, it's, it's an easier ask. How do you manipulate the, the wheelchair? What? How come you're using those type of wheels instead of this, uh, these other wheels? How are you getting around? What can we do for our system to help you know blind individuals, you know, like yourself, to 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 navigate our city? So those questions are they help society move forward than just you know oh this this athlete won 23 gold medals. It's a deeper, richer conversation and, and moves society forward. And that's why I like bridging the gap between Olympism and Paralympism as well as bridging the gap between sports, music, and food. It's amazing to me to see the, those connection points for us to move our society forward. I was hired by the United States Olympic Committee to build out a program for wounded, ill, and injured service members. And that program really just took off like gangbusters. And because of that, it morphed into warrior games that the, the Department of Defense now runs, but the United States Olympic Committee ran it for five years. And then I went to Loughborough University in England and told them how to build a military sport program. Prince Harry took it up, came out to see our warrior games, and from there started his own Invictus Games. So that's where that came from. All from this one little nugget of the, these programs that I started way back in 1994 at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. When you throw a ball out anywhere in the world, people come running. It doesn't matter what social economic background you have. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter you know what color or race or creed. You throw a ball out there and people just start playing with the ball. And I think that connects us, you know, play connects us. I knew nothing about Uzbekistan before going. When anybody asked me, what's your favorite country, right? I say the next one. And so it was closed to Westerners at the time. So it was, oh, we were very fortunate to get into the country. But once in, it opens up to this amazing experience, right? So everything shuts down at 11 o'clock. But there's a wedding going on in our hotel. And what's playing up top floor? Jay-Z and Beyonce. Right. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, it's kind of crazy that you see these countries that are so influenced by Western thought or Western culture. And then you're trying at the same time to just embrace this amazing 
culture and customs. So yeah, for me, it was it was a, a great experience to see that. There are 12 regions. Every region has the best pluff. Pluff is a dish. It's a kind of very earthy, meaty dish, rice and oils and meat, right? Like horse meat. In any region that you go to, everybody will ask you, who has the best pluff? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a loaded question, right? Because they all want to have the best pluff and bread. I was listening to a song, a kid come on the radio with one of our drivers, and it's the Beatles, you know? Uh, and the Beatles are singing, All I Need Is Love. So I'm going to the radio station to do an interview, uh, and the woman asked me a question, and I answer, and I say, but I know you have a new theme song and a new national anthem for uh, Uzbekistan. And she's looking at me like, oh my gosh, we're on live radio. What is this dude about to say? And so I took the song, and I said, you know, every region has the best pluff. You know, I'm getting all this pluff. And so, you know, the song that's been coming in my mind that you all are, are singing now is, all I eat is pluff. All I eat is pluff. All I eat is pluff. Yeah, pluff is all I eat. And I get back to the car, and our driver, who's back, he, he is just cracking up. So I'm saying, so glad that worked, right? Could be out of the country real quick with that. I wanted my wife there with me to experience all this that I was I was doing, right? So I brought her with me to the United Arab Emirates. It was another eye-opening experience for me, not just for her. We had a tea chat and we were talking about disabilities and I was one of the panelists. And as we were going through the program, I was telling my story and I was celebrating Alice because she's the one that really came to me and, and baseline me. And so when I'm telling this, and mostly in the afternoon were, were women that were there, and a lot of women are being in arranged marriages. So to see this American woman who authentically just was supporting her husband, the entire room shifted to her. And they wanted to hear from her about how she stayed with me during this really traumatic time. Because their experience was, and the, the, the words they were sharing, was that when they had a child with a disability, the husband left. When they had something that happened in the marriage, the husband left. And so they were left to build their own community of these other women that would help take care of these children or uh, or themselves in this in this moment. And so they were in lock and step in tune. But she saw it from a different lens as well, in that her voice is important in this story journey. I mean, I know it, but it's only from my lens. Her story from being a woman in, the, in that standpoint of what she was taught by her mother and her value system really came out and grafted into those ladies. I think she really understood the gift that she has and how she can actually talk from a very authentic place about her experience of supporting somebody that the world may have just thrown away. what we're there for in the first place, to try to open up doors and open up thoughts around people with disabilities. And so Mary-Kate being a wheelchair user, you know, they showed us the, this amazing bus they had, they had an accessible bus. We're the only two people on the bus, and it's, a, it's really great. It's the only one they have in Kazakhstan, ordered by the president. 
and she's going to teach her master's class and we get to the class the swimming venue where she's going to teach and there are no ramps to get her into the building right and you don't have to say a word you just watch everybody try to figure this out here's your instructor your master class instructor who can't get into the building to instruct the class and so that really understands and shows it's just more than transportation it's more than just the the attitude it's really putting these things in practice because there's some value that we're missing if we can't get people just into the door and you don't have to say a word about it it's just it's just there right in front of you to and you and you and we struggle with it and we do that with so many things and i think that is why these programs that we have that state has are so critical for not only our country but for us to learn around the world and so now with that one experience that Mary Kate Callahan has, they're looking at, okay, what else are we missing here? And so now the infrastructure is being put in place because they're looking at it from the lens of trying to bring more people into that, that swimming area. I'll go back to the Global Sport Mentoring Program, which has about 25 to 30 individuals that come from other countries into the United States. One individual that I was a mentor for when I was working for the Olympic Committee came in from Kazakhstan. His name is Yerlan Sumlinov. And Yerlan comes in, he's, a, he's an above-the-knee amputee like myself. And we worked on his action plan of what he wanted to get done. I took Yerlan to the Amputee Coalition meeting. And Yerlan, with his pants and his trousers and his artificial leg, he never showed it. Wherever we were, wherever we went, sometimes hot days in Colorado, he never showed his leg. So we get there, there are 1,100 amputees, all of whom, most of whom, are showing their medal. We call it showing your medal. And so no one's going with covers. It's all walk, walk with what you have, write with what you have, you know, prosthetics are all over the place. So it usually freaks a lot of people out of hotels because we have like 1,100 people walking around and all the limbs are just like, they feel the, the odd ones out, so we flip it. When Yerlan saw that, we went back to our hotel. He changes up for dinner that night and he comes down and he stripped off his cover off of his leg and he's wearing shorts. Big change moment for him, but it doesn't stop there. So he goes back to Kazakhstan with his action plan and he begins walking around the Kazakhstan mall with his son wearing shorts in Kazakhstan, which is like unheard of, you know, showing his medal and being confident in who he is because he's got this confidence now from the United States. And it doesn't stop there. So he goes on and he looks at what he's learned in America and he begins, he says, I want to build a training facility that houses athletes and then does a full smorgasbord of stuff and they all are in one location so he gets that done within two years and it doesn't stop there so we get over there and he has the president of Kazakhstan cutting the ribbon to open this place up it's crazy to see what people are doing and they take one thought one idea and it just keeps on going and opening up doors and opportunities and now you know he's he's mentoring he's he's helping others he's helping his country's elevated with inside of his his own country because he's, a, he's just a hard worker and he sees his vision and wants to get it done. But his ability to shift his mindset around who he shows up as was done here in the, in the U.S. And I think that opened up his whole mind of what was possible for others in their, in their country.
I think the United States is a leader in inclusion and with disabilities. I also think that there's still a lot that we can learn from other countries as well, because sometimes it takes a long time for us to implement a policy in the United States, even though it's the right thing to do. The attitudinal barriers stop us from actually getting it you know, executed. And if you take where the disability movement starts with the civil rights movement, it takes a long time for those policies to actually interact and change a nation. For example, with this, in the civil rights where African-Americans were trying to sit anywhere on the bus, people with disabilities were just trying to get on the bus. So we have these things that have come and the attitudinal barriers that have stopped us and where that plays out mostly for us in the United States is in jobs. And so we have this population where the CDC says now that people with disabilities are 25% in the United States, six, about 61 million people. And we look at this time period of jobs, just take that one tick, right? And we haven't moved very much on how many people with disabilities are actually employed. And so we're at 8830 now. It's crazy. And there's still so much to do and to fight for, but a lot of progress has been made. We see curb cutouts and we see things where people with disabilities can get out and they can interact in society. But we also see that attitudinal barriers block and keep people either at home or programs won't allow them to to get out and fully participate in society. And we lose so much of the intellect that they bring to the table. Our teams aren't diverse enough because of it. So that's become my major mission in life, not just with the disabilities, but also for all of us to release from what I call my fears to our freedom, to leaving legacy for others. And it runs this finite line runs through our redefining moments. So I now help people to release into those redefining moments and so that they are in a position to choose what it is in their life that they will amputate to embrace this new normal. I realized that disability is universal and the two main focuses that we have in this country are universal across the board. It just matters where people are in that journey. And those two are structural or physical barriers to impedes people or the, the attitudinal barriers that keeps people, people locked away or allows folks to being an inclusive society. And the people are on various parts of the spectrum with that. And so the universal message, the kind of the bridge I can can cross, always seems to be being this world-class athlete and being in two Olympic trials and then winning a Paralympic silver medal. Because this is all around the world, it's the only population, the disability population, is the only population that's non-discriminatory. It can happen to anybody at any given time. And we don't think about it. We don't want to think about it. But it, it, a stroke happens all the time. Or uh, somebody's incapacitated from some type of, of, a, of a way. And the language that we use around it often can push people, hold people back, or can elevate people. So we have to use change our language and our narrative. And I really find in communities where language is... A barrier with inside of itself. It's really good to understand, and, and I've learned about myself, is to open up my language aperture. I make 
sure that as we're structuring the program that we do have these opportunities to, to cover the spread, as I call it, because we do need to talk to the high level officials that can actually make policy, make changes and get them to think differently. But at the same time, we want to give insight and, and inspiration to those youth who are coming up. So we visit a lot of communities that have children with disabilities or the parents of those individuals. But then we go to schools and we have, we play and we, you know, I take the, let them see the leg and I take the leg off, unscrew it and pass it around. And they're trying to hold it up. And I said, be careful, it'll, it'll bite you back, right? And and they're playing with it and shaking it and trying to figure out. So they get this experience that it's okay to have these conversations. And we're talking about the young tykes from, you know, six years, six years of age, five, six years old, all the way through middle school. We have different conversations with high school kids to talk about their dreams, their goals, their aspirations and nothing should hold you back. What are the fears that you might have that are holding you back? So we talk about it from that context as well as embracing other people's differences from that that aspect. And then talking to the teachers, you know, to have these conversations and open up dialogue there as well. It's covering the entire gambit of it. I love doing it. We just try to make sure that we are showing up present in the moment with our authentic self. Not with somebody else's story, but with our own story and being very real with who we are and sharing our truth with that. Twenty two thirty three is produced by the Collaboratory an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. <laughs>